you would please stand. And if you have a Bible near you, please open it to John chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 to 15 on page 891 in the ESV Pew Bible. John chapter 6, verses 1 to 15. So, John writes, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. Lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments, that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. The word of the Lord. Gracious Father, we pray that you would please send your Holy Spirit upon us. Uh, The same Spirit that worked in your servant John to record these words. May that same Spirit, Father, be powerfully at work in our hearts. Give us ears, please, to hear your word, to believe it, Father, to obey it, and to rejoice in it. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Please keep the Bible open to John chapter 6. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 15, but I actually want to start this morning by drawing your attention to verse 15, the very last verse in the reading. It says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Uh, That verse really jumped out at me as I was preparing for my sermon this week. Um, Because verses 1 to 14, as I read them, don't really point towards thinking about kings and kingdoms and kingship. It doesn't point towards things like that as I read it, as I read it for the first time. I didn't see the connection between verses 1 to 14 and the crowd's response in verse 15. Well, um, that's because I wasn't raised steeped in the Old Testament I wasn't raised uh, from a very early age waiting on the coming fulfillment of all God's Old Testament promises. Um, But actually, for those who were waiting on these things, what we see in verses 1 to 14 very much suggests 
exactly what they think in verse 15. A connection between all that we're going to see and this coming promised king who would one day, according to the Old Testament, come and fulfill God's Old Testament promises. Uh, If you look in the bulletin, you'll find a little outline on page uh, 9. You might want to have this open too, along with the Bible, as we make our way through these few verses. I'm going to be going at a pretty uh, significant clip so that we finish up in plenty of time for other things we have to do today. But I don't want to skip over anything that is important. My first point, you'll notice, is the world's idea of kingship. What was there about kingship, about the idea of a king, that very likely stirred the hearts of the crowd who witnessed what we read about in verses 1 to 14? What was their idea of kingship? And just sort of backing up a little bit, what is the world's idea of kingship? Because we're we're going to see that there were some things in their thinking which very much reflect attitudes that we find not really in the Bible, but in the world around us. And it was as true uh, in their day as it is today. Uh, I I was actually thinking through, what is it people think about kings? Um, People in authority like that, royal, sovereign authority. That's a good question. So I conducted an exhaustive survey of my five grandchildren. (laughs) While their unsuspecting parents were otherwise occupied, I talked to my grandkids about what is a king. What does a king do? What would you do if you were king? Well, Flora, Audrey, and Mary Jane had no intelligible opinion on kings or kingship. Uh, My four-year-old grandson, Thomas, however, had very, very strong opinions, uh, but they revolved mainly around singing animals and assassination, (laughs) which made perfect sense when I realized that he had recently watched The Lion King. Uh, So when I asked about King, he thought about the Lion King, which made perfect sense. It fell to my five-year-old grandson, William, to share the most well-developed opinions about kingship. Uh, He said, kings make everybody find diamonds for their crown. If you wondered what a king does, kings make you find diamonds for their crown. Kings fight wars and battles. Kings have castles and palaces. And kings tell people what to do. And I asked William, what would you do if you were king? And he said, well, if I was king, I would build the biggest castle on the whole planet and build a big throne and put it on the top of a tall, tall tower so I can see my enemies coming. (laughs) I think what he did was he was merging everything he thought about kings with uh, Scar and and, uh, Simba and uh, the Lion King. He wanted to see those enemies coming from a big distance. Well, that's a kid's version of what the world kind of thinks about kings. Kings have to do with wealth and power and power over enemies. Uh, Kings are very powerful. And that's the way the world tends to visualize kingship. Of course, in first century Judea, Uh, That idea of powerful and uh, kings who overcame their enemies, that was very wrapped up in the situation that they lived in. Uh, Judea was actually an occupied place. Uh, The Romans occupied 
uh, Judea. The uh, Romans occupied Galilee. The Romans occupied Jerusalem. The Romans occupied the temple. And so over the first century uh, people who would have been living through what John records here, the idea of king, and specifically the king of Israel, had everything to do with kicking the enemies out. Getting rid of the Romans and returning Israel to its rightful place as a sovereign nation. And that was very much in their minds as these events unfolded. So in uh, verse 15, what they were thinking was that what they had seen in Jesus pointed towards a king who would come and set their homeland free at last. And uh, political science majors like me and Paul, uh, they would have thought politically. They would have thought about the politics of power and all those things. Uh, That's the world's idea of kingship then and now. So what did Jesus' signs point to? We read that uh, in verse 2, a large crowd was following Jesus because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. So they'd already seen the signs we've been reading about. If you were here last Sunday, you heard Julian Russell preach a wonderful sermon on the healing by the pool and uh, the, the healing of that uh, man who had been ill for decades. That had spread and others like it. Some of the other stories recorded these signs had spread and the people were responding to these signs. They were following Jesus and what began as a, as a little crowd grew and grew and grew to a medium crowd and it grew and grew and grew to a large crowd. Thousands of people, 5,000 men are here surrounding Jesus. He sees them. He's with his disciples. He goes up on a mountain and uh, he is uh, about to teach them something about his kingdom. And there's a couple of clues uh, that we find in these first four verses. Verses 1 to 4, what do Jesus' signs point to? Uh, Two clues, verse 3, Jesus and his disciples went up on the mountain. Um, That area doesn't actually have any literal Mount Everest-style mountains, but it does have elevated big, big hills. And so... John describes that big, big hill as a mountain. Why? Well, it wasn't that he was geographically confused. It was that he was theologically minded. The fact that Jesus, and and John records this, as do all the gospel writers many times, Jesus is often described as going to a mountain. He goes to the mountain to pray. He goes to the mountain to spend time with God. Well, to a first century Jew, the idea of Jesus going to a mountain called to their mind one thing. Moses and the Ten Commandments. And this amazing interaction between God and the people of Israel where God spoke to Moses on the mountain as Moses prepared the law. It was on the mountain. And so this little phrase, Jesus on the mountain, would no doubt have called to their mind the images of Moses and and the role that Moses had to play in the life of Israel. Verse 4 has another, uh, give a very significant clue. Now, the Passover 
the feast of the Jews was at hand. It's interesting, John felt like he needed to describe what the Passover was. Just another clue that John was writing with non-Jews in mind. He's describing these things for an audience that included Gentiles who didn't know much about Passover. Maybe people like you and me. But to first century Jews, the word Passover was packed with significance. Especially when coupled just the previous verse with Moses. Moses and Passover. What was the Passover? Well, the Passover was the great demonstration of God's sovereign rule over all of history in the life of Israel. God had led Israel out of the reign of Pharaoh, the greatest king in the world, the king who ruled exactly like the world thinks a king should rule with power and force. God led his people who had been slaves there out of Egypt and began a long discovery with them, a long pilgrimage with them. Forty years long it took them to travel from Egypt to the promised land. And all that was wrapped up in this idea of Passover. There's something else wrapped up in the idea of Passover. It would have been something called manna. Actually, Jesus is going to go on and mention manna over in verse 32. Uh, he'll, he'll be talking about manna uh, as he does uh, in, later on in this chapter. He talks about manna. He talks about Moses. And uh, God, as he led his people out of Egypt provided for them over the long years of the Exodus, God provided for his people by providing manna. And as I say, Jesus is going to go on to talk a little bit about manna over later in this chapter. Uh, Exodus chapter 16, verses 1 to 36, if you flip over to those verses, you'll see it's a whole chapter about manna. It's a whole chapter about how God provided for his people the food they needed to eat. They were leaving the flesh pots of Egypt and just a short way into their trip, they became aware of their lack and they were actually longing to go back to Egypt. Moses said, there's no need to go back to Egypt. And God, through a miracle, provided for his people the blessing of manna. And over the long years, God provided... The, the bread they needed as well as the meat they needed with the, the uh, twin miracle of, of the quail that he provided. God provided the bread and the meat for his people as they made their way where he was taking them. So you see this, this sign that is about to be described. Jesus is about to do for them what God had done for Israel. We're going to look more into that in just a moment. But all of this is pointing us towards this miraculous provision of God through his servant Moses. Uh, if you flip over to Ezekiel chapter 34, this, this one would be worth your looking up. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 to 12 and verse 14. Flip over to Ezekiel 34. Keep your finger in John 6, but flip over, if you would, to Ezekiel chapter 34. This would have been very much in their mind because Ezekiel the prophet ties together some of the things we've seen uh, today. 
uh, Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 to 12. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. It's interesting, in just a few uh, verses, Jesus is going to describe himself as a shepherd. Well, God says, I will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And then notice what it says, I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down. Psalm 23, well, There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. And I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. So flip back to John 6. What are the people thinking? They're thinking about the Passover. They're thinking about manna. They're thinking about Moses. And they're thinking about Ezekiel's promise that one day God himself would feed his people. And so when Jesus, here in verses 1 to 4, presents himself at the season of Passover with the thousands watching. Well, all the signs of Jesus, including his healing, there are other, other promises that the Messiah would, would bring healing. Isaiah promises that the Messiah would bring healing. All these signs are pointing. This is the third of seven signs. All these promises, all these signs are pointing towards who Jesus is and what he's come to do. So all of Jesus' signs point him, point them toward his being the Messiah, the fulfillment of those promises. And the Messiah, let's be clear, the, the Christ was the king, the, the, the shepherd, the, the coming one who would come and set them free and lead them to liberation as God had led the people of Israel to liberation. But, but, this king was a different kind of king. Their understanding wasn't an understanding you'd pick up in a political science class. The understanding of this king can only be found in one place, a person. They're going to find out that this king is a very radically different kind of king. Verses 5 to 14 and 30 to 35 just over on the next uh, column. In verse 2, John goes out of his way to mention the Sea of Galilee, which he said is called the Sea of Tiberias. That's an interesting geographical detail. Again, it's interesting because very likely he is talking to people who had never heard of the Sea of Galilee. They'd only heard of the Sea of Tiberias. It was the alternative preferred Roman name for the Sea of Galilee. They all knew it as Galilee, but the Romans knew it as Tiberius, and Tiberius, as was pointed out uh, by a previous preacher, Tiberius is the name of a Roman emperor. 
And what did Roman emperors do? They bossed people around. They told them what to do. They conquered their enemies. And they took their place names and changed them. Is there any more authoritative thing to do than to take a well-known place name and say, this is no longer the Sea of Galilee. Going forward, this is now the Sea of Tiberias, the second Roman emperor. That's the world's idea of kingship. And there's this little, little clue that that's in the, the, the context. A, 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 an occupied place where the authorities had come in and done this display of power. Force. And then in verses 5 to 14, Jesus is described as fulfilling this sign, this, this amazing miracle. Um, this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, the uh, ESV editors have helpfully titled this uh, paragraph, Jesus Feeds the 5,000. This is the only miracle recorded by all four gospel writers. Isn't that interesting? Of all the miracles of Jesus, this miracle, these, this miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, is the only one that's recorded by all four. It was important to all four of the gospel writers. Obviously, there were more individuals involved in this miracle than in any other miracle. It's the largest one we know about. 5,000 men could very easily have been, as Julian said, 20, 25,000 people. We don't know. But there were 5,000 men there, the largest crowd that we read about Jesus interacting with. Um, it marks the only attempt by an Israelite crowd to crown Jesus as king. It's the only place in all the Gospels where the Israelite crowd actually is intending to do what they intend to do in verse 15. It's the only miracle where Jesus asks his disciples some questions. In the middle of the miracle, as he's performing the miracle, he's actually teaching them. He's asking them questions. He's doing a platonic a dialogical teaching. He, he asked them the questions, where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? John actually tells us Jesus doesn't ask because he doesn't know. He knows what he's planning to do. He's asking to teach them like a good teacher does. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? How many loaves do you have? He asks over in Mark chapter 6, verse 38 in a, a parallel version of this same miracle. It's also the only miracle where Jesus asks his disciples to do something, to serve him. He says, bring me the five loaves and the two fishes that uh, Andrew points out. And uh, that's over in Matthew 14, verses 17 to 18. And Jesus tells the disciples to uh, have the people sit down. So in the story of this miracle, the disciples actually have a role to play. Uh, he gives them instructions. He tells them what to do. Uh, they're involved in the activity. Uh, he himself is involved and they are involved as well. So the kingdom is being described here. The, the, the kingdom that Jesus is coming is being described and it's unusual. It's a different kind of kingdom and a different kind of king. The king we read about here in John chapter 6 is not a king who lives in a palace in a castle on a high mountaintop. This is a king who is with his people among them, sensing their need, living with them, walking with them, like Moses did. This is a king who, who reigns by serving. He reigns 
by providing. He reigns by calling His people to Himself and showing them love and mercy. What the God of Israel had done. Now this is a different kind of king. This is a king who who actually loves his sheep and, and seeks them out and comes to get them. This is a king who calls people to simply come to him. If you flip over to verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That's the kind of king we have in Jesus. We have a king who loves, a king who shows mercy, a king who simply says, come to me, bring your brokenness, bring your emptiness, bring your imperfections, bring your inadequacies, come as you are to me, and I will be your king. Here is a king that the world can't force. You know, uh, in the Roman Empire, like Tiberius's day and Caligula who followed him um, and Nero who followed him, crowds, mobs often forced kings. You know, we, we tend to think in like in the monarchy in Great Britain, there's this orderly succession and son, father to son and so forth and it hands down in a very orderly way. That is a modern invention. In the ancient world, sons had a little bit of a presumption, but they did not have any certainty. And if you look at the family tree of the Roman emperors, you see very often they were put in place by an unruly mob. They were put in place by an insurrection. A group of people gathered around them, and a a distant cousin may find himself the next emperor because all the others were killed. Caligula is said to have killed Tiberius. Suffocating him. So the the Roman emperors and the the kingly authorities of Jesus' day, they they were often put in place by this mob. Well, Jesus' kingdom is not like that. In fact, when Jesus gets the idea that's what's about to happen, what does he do? He leaves them and goes by himself because his kingdom is not like that. His kingdom is not about force. It's not about worldly authority and thinking the way the world thinks. In fact, John's going to go on to show us that this king actually came into the world to die for those who resisted him. He came into the world to die for his enemies. And all that in John's gospel is being unpacked. This is the king. This is who the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 points towards. A different kind of king. A kind of king, by the way, who can use the gift of a little boy. I love the the story in verse 9. There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Was he he William's age? I don't know. Was he 8, 9, 10? I don't know. But he was a boy. He was a very young boy. Young man. A very young person. Andrew sees this little boy with his, with his five loaves and his two fish and Jesus takes these five loaves and these two fish. It says he took them and he gave thanks to them for them and then he distributed them to those who were seated. The picture is actually of Jesus himself 
distributing the bread. Jesus himself feeding the crowd. We know from other passages that the disciples also helped. They helped distribute. Jesus gets his servants to be a part of his work. To those of you who are up for office later today, you're not called to the world's idea of authority. You're called to a diaconal kind of authority, the service authority, the the service authority that we see in Jesus. That's the kind of king Jesus is. That's the kind of king that we worship today. A king who loves us. A king who provides for us. A king who feeds us. And I've I've got a wonderful quote I found from uh, John Piper. John Piper went to Angola prison and he preached on this passage in a prison to a prison full of hardened criminals. And John said about this passage, Jesus came not to give bread, but to be bread. You see, the sign wasn't the point. The point wasn't the manna. It wasn't the point in uh, the Old Testament. It's not the point in the New Testament. The point isn't that God provides the physical needs of his people. He does. But you see, the real point of the miracle What this sign is pointing us towards is the miracle that the king who reigns over us is actually himself our bread, our nourishment. We're we're fed on him. We celebrate a meal Uh, here at Metrocrest. We'll do it in a couple of weeks. We'll, We'll gather around this little table and we'll share bread. Not because it's magically transformed into the physical body of Christ, Something infinitely more wonderful. That Jesus came into the world to be our bread. He came into the world to feed us and to nourish us and to help us to grow up in him. Now this is a king who came to serve. This is a king who came not merely to give bread, but to be the bread that we desperately need to feed us. So that all who come to him, all who believe in him, will be nourished by him and will be given all that they need spiritually to grow in him. And as he provides, he will lead us on the way. He will lead us towards the fulfillment of all God's promises 